Welcome back to the podcast. Back for 20. Episode 9. Matchup Roulette. Flesh and Blood is a matchup roulette. Uh, this is a topic that I think a lot of people are thinking about, especially as we're coming up onto the Pro Tour, as well as I've heard some people talk about it in the context of Uprising Draft. But before we start, first, I want to remind everyone that we have a website, rate this podcast slash A420 podcast. That's the letter A, the number 420 podcast. I'll include a link in the episode notes and the description. Uh, basically, it's like quite an involved process, isn't it? Yeah, it takes a few steps. Um, during your desktop, you can only rate us on like iTunes and Oddchaser, I think. It takes a couple of steps. You're gonna have to like log into your iTunes and and do all this stuff. But um, and oh, you have to have watched or listened, sorry, to our podcast on whatever platform you're gonna rate us on. Um, I think they do that so that bots can't do it. Uh, but yeah, it really helps us. And um, as we start getting more. Uh, ratings. We currently have zero. Uh, we will pick our favorite ones and, and read them out and uh, give you guys a shout out. So please, if you haven't done that, uh, give it a try. It does take a couple of minutes. So we appreciate you guys doing that in advance. Okay. Before we get started onto the main topic, last week in Flesh and Blood, we were both at the same armory, but in different draft pods. Actually, I drafted. I think an extra time. Uh, and both times I drafted Dromai. So it was actually pretty fun. He broke the cycle. Yeah. Well, both both drafts, I just pack one, pick one to Red Ember Maw. And then I got another Red Ember Maw, like pretty, like some point in pack one. And I was just like, that's it for me. I'm a, I'm a Dromai drafter now. How much of it do you think is, because I remember in the early days of Uprising Draft, you would still pick, like the Ember Maw, Red Ember Maw kind of early, but then just like leave leave Dromai because there's an end up not being open. Yeah. Um, so one of the drafts, uh, basically on pick four, there was a yellow Ember Maw and it was missing a ninja card. And it still had two Dromai cards. And I did the math and I was like, basically, it felt like I said cards were being taken. And so I just took Emberman and called it a day, and then the next pack was missing ninja cards, and still had two draw my cards. I was like, I'm a draw my player. So I, I think it's just that for that pod, it was just five was a little bit drafted, overdrafted maybe. Um, so I, it was just like I like if if one five card is missing and I'm kind of leaning towards draw my like you know, and I had these powerful draw my cards, I, I'm gonna play draw my. Um, it just is like the power of the cards in that first pack, because, because especially now that I understand how like uh, the, I, I I always forget the name of it when we, when we do the podcast. collation. Yeah, well, the collation. Um, I know that, like, there's probably gonna only be like one more yellow Ember Maw, right? Like, yeah, there's likely just gonna be two. So if I don't take it right here, like, I might never see another yellow Ember Maw again. And yellow Ember Maw is still quite powerful. Something uh, I did. Oh wait, something that did happen that I thought was pretty interesting is I had a silent stilettos. I attacked with a red Ember Maw, um, thinking that was just going to be my turn, and I was going to arsenal a yellow Ember Maw, um, and I had one floating because I pitched the blue. But instead, my opponent popped the red Ember Maw, so I triggered my silent stilettos and I attacked him with like two Ash Wings, and he was at one. Ooh, that's tough. 
that's not a play that you do very often, but I thought it was pretty neat and I wanted to share. Yeah, I drafted Icelander in our shared but not shared armory. armory. Oh yeah, the seven-person pod. Yeah, ended up being three Icelanders. Um, I don't know. I thought that the deck that I drafted was okay, but it was just the person who won the pod just had a very strong draw my deck and pretty on on target for the episode. That matchup, especially if the Dromai is a strong deck, I feel like it's very difficult to win for the Icelander. Yes. Uh, I think that we did mention that during our winning with uh, Icelander and winning with Dromai um, episodes 4 and 5, where we kind of just talk about how that can be a very lopsided matchup. What do you think, what cards in particular do you think, um, this, this was Trebbing, right? What cards in particular do you think made that matchup kind of hard? I think it? it's a combination of things. I think normally, uh, so like if you have if you have a plethora of blue ice wizard at, like non tech actions, you can kind of grind through some of the like the ash wings or whatever dragons that they might like pose, but. I think you have a hard time dealing damage to them, especially if they play like a little bit conservative and then just like try to maximize their arcane barrier. So cards like Rake the Embers are, is difficult for you to advance your game plan while you're just kind of stalling them out. Uh, and then they can just come in with some turns where they just go like one for three, go again into like a two for seven or two for eight. And those are also pretty difficult to advance your own game plan especially since the kill turn is so uh what's it called the kill turn especially against dromai is very uh difficult because they have access to cards like sand cover as well as more than one arcane barrier like did you feel like trapping had a bunch of like a lot of blues plus rakes oh dude i just got yeah he had like rakes he played like two rakes against me and then i just got ranched by like he did like he like attacked with a chromai and then I killed it and then he played a Vinzerakai and then attacked with it. And I, was like, oh, crap. Well, I don't have the cars to block it and like deal with it. I don't know. It, it was just tough, tough times. Last week in Flesh and Blood, we went over. What about next week in Flesh and Blood? Ah, oh, yes. Next week we're going to Singapore. Um, I think I'm flying earlier than you. Uh, for the calling, of course, um, and hopefully not for the battle hardened, just the calling. For, but for the for the chicken rice, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. For the infinity pools, yes, yes. Um, and then we're gonna go directly from there to France. It's gonna be a good time. If if you listen to us and you're gonna be in Singapore, come say hi. Yeah, yeah. Tell us if it's helpful for you, and tell us if it's not. Particularly yeah, yeah. if it's not helpful. Yes. Well, if it's not helpful, why would they continue to listen to us? I don't know. Maybe just those are like the uh, most passionate people. Actually, they like hate yeah. your podcast and they just like still listen to it. Yeah, true. Okay, uh, on to the main topic: the matchup roulette. Michael, would you say like how much would you say matchups like affected the tournaments that you entered? Are we talking about Flesh and Blood or first? Let's start with like other other card games like Magic: The Gathering or any other card games that you've played. Uh, I think that's also format dependent, like, uh, in standard, it felt like, m at least most of the standards we played, like, there was just, like, these, like, mid-range fests, mm -hmm. 
like every single deck just had all these like innate two for ones. Um, yeah. There could be like an aggro deck, like a red-ish based aggro deck, but I don't know. Like it felt like, by the way, Magic did it. That's out of three, 15 card sideboard. Like you usually had a plan for everybody. Um, there, there was somewhat of like a like the control decks typically beat the aggro decks. The aggro decks beat the uh, or get beat by the mid range decks, and the mid range decks get beat by the control decks. Like that was like the mm-hmm. overall um, thesis, but. Uh, <laughs> I know what we're talking about next. So I guess I want to say like it didn't feel as roulette-y. I, I think for games that have like the best out of three format, um, although I think even in Flesh of Blood, if you play the best out of three, I don't think much would change. But like those games were designed with a certain amount of variance built into the game. And so I always felt like even if you have a bad matchup, at least like you could play into the variance of the game. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's that's really the only TCG that I, I played enough to, to get an idea of how um, matchups worked, I guess. I played I played a little Pokemon TCG for uh, like while I was doing research during COVID times. Uh, and that game also like a lot of the matchups felt honestly like mm, like even ish, at least like if you're playing good decks. Except I remember there's like this one deck that plays like this Pokemon that you just like doesn't take any damage from GX or like V Pokemon and like I mean you can you can run into like pure counters but usually those kinds of decks are more like fringe decks than uh, in Flesh and Blood uh, where sometimes even like the quote unquote meta decks there can be like hard counters and I think uh, transitioning so the main difference. Uh, that we're alluding to between Flesh and Blood and uh, these other card games is the game engine, I guess if you call it that, for Flesh and Blood, just like leads to a lower variance game uh, in general. A part of that is because you draw four cards every turn. Uh, part of it is because you can basically stack your deck if the game goes on long enough. Yeah, yeah. I think particularly that, actually. That you're able... Because, like... Uh, I guess we didn't talk about this, but last weekend I also went to Gen Con and I uh, demoed a few TCGs. One Piece TCG particularly is a little bit new, uh, hasn't come out yet, uh, but also My Hero Academia and Why Shorts. And all of these games actually use the same system for their uh, like discard pile. And basically the discard pile, like Why Shorts calls it a waiting room. So it's not like an actual discard pile. You put it in there, and then when you're done filtering through your deck, you just shuffle your graveyard, basically, and that becomes your deck again. And that's distinctly what Flesh and Blood does not do. So what Flesh and Blood does is when you pitch resources, you pitch them to the bottom of your deck, and that gives you a type of control to your deck that, like, maybe I just am unaware. But I I don't know any other TCGs that kind of do that, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think the deck velocity uh, and also like the being able to control like your draws later on. Uh, I think the closest thing that I can think of that I've played to Flesh and Blood in terms of like matchups is actually Hearthstone. Because when I played Hearthstone Constructed, so like uh, I think a lot of people when they first asked me what Flesh and Blood was like, I, I think... Most people default to saying that it's kind of like magic, but I actually think that Flesh and Blood 
the card game that it's most similar to in terms of how it plays out is Hearthstone uh, that I've played just because uh, in Hearthstone you play with like 30 card decks, right? And then there's like all these cards that like you can trip and whatever. And so you go through like a good percentage of your deck. I would say like in most like constructed matches of Hearthstone, like if you're in like the grind, like fatigue, whatever matchups, you see like your entire deck and sometimes it just like ends up being like whether or not you got enough value out of your cards to fatigue your opponent out um, because they just like run out of cards. Or if in like the more aggro matches, even like in the aggro matches, I think you go through at least like, I want to say like 65 to 70% of your deck. And for flesh and blood, you in, in classic constructed, you draw four cards every turn. Uh, so you have 15 hands essentially if you submit like a lean 60. So if your game goes for like, I don't know, like 10 turn cycles, you go through like two thirds of your deck. And 10 turn cycles is actually quite long depending on the matchup, but in some matchups where it gets dragged out, it's pretty average or, or games actually go longer than that. Yeah, yeah, agree. I think the other part of Flesh and Blood uh, that hasn't been mentioned yet at least is how flexible cards are. So each card can be played and can be used to block and can be used to pitch. Obviously, there are exceptions, but in general, most cards can do all three. And in all these other TCGs that we like reference, those are often three distinct type of cards. Yeah, yeah. And in general, just lowering the total variance, right? Exactly. Like you're still able to do things no matter what four cards you draw most of the time, of course. And so... I think because there is less variance in Flesh and Blood, it's pretty funny. I think um, the the example that I can think of that's most salient. So like, you know how like in Magic, uh, people say, oh man, like I lost because this guy drew like this card into that card into this card. I'm just like, whatever, aggravate me out. And if you didn't draw like these like three cards, then I would have been done for. When I was playing Briar, when Starvo was... Uh, like the deck, the main deck of choice. I remember I play like my channel Mahorok, and I was like, well, if he doesn't draw the Crippling Crush or the Spinal Crush or the Channel Lake Frigid, or it's just like all, like a list of like all these cards, and he gets like four draws plus like he could have arsenaled it, so it could have been like four from like the previous turn. Yeah, plus Crown of Seeds. Yeah, Oak and Old. Yeah, he just needs to not have like one of one out of these like twelve cards, and so like like the the reason why I'm giving this example is just like um usually if you have like a unfavorable matchup, there's like something inherent to either like the card pool or the hero ability or like whatever it is like a, it's like a aggregation of all these factors that cause you to to be losing right. And so I think that in order to, I think, I think it's, it's good to have like the framework to understand, well, rather than uh, even on like a one hero to one hero, I, I personally like to think of it more as like strengths and strengths and weaknesses of certain heroes. So heroes will have weaknesses to certain types of strategies. And then if you have this kind of framework, then you can kind of begin to decide whether or not it's worth it to dedicate cards to 
adjust your deck to play into those weaknesses of the other decks that you're trying to improve your matchups for. So I'll give an example. Same format, Viserai versus Starvo. I think when we were testing at the very beginning, do you remember? I think we were in the... We went to the Airbnb and we were testing like Viserai and the Starvo. Yeah, this was right before Battle Hardened Pits. No, uh, Philly. Battle Hardened Philly. The first Battle Hardened. I was like, you you play Viserai. And then we were like playing the games. And I was like, oh, it's not even close. Starvo just like runs him over. Yeah, the full context is we had just kind of heard of the Starvo deck. And both Yanji and I actually brought Viserai to the Battle Hardened. Um, and then we were like, oh, let's test some games. Like, it, you know, it seems like it's a good deck. What, what should we do? And uh, initially, I think Yanji, I was playing Starvo. Who was playing Starvo? I, just, was... I, I, think I, was, I think I was playing Starvo and you were playing Viserai. Oh, yeah, I was because, yeah, 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 yeah. And you were just like destroying me. And I was just like, how do you? So then since you're the better Viserai player, we were like, let's swap. You play Viserai and I play Starvo. And then it was like the same result. And then we were just like, oh my god. We just started looking for the Tales of Arya comments for the other deck. Uh, yeah, definitely at the very beginning of the format, it felt like very difficult to play into that. Yeah, I mean, you were also leading me. You were like, you have to play the Runeblood Barrier. It's the only way you have a chance. Oh, uh, that card's so bad, dude. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was leading you astray. Um, so I think... Uh, Going back to the framework that we were talking about, you have to like kind of consider, okay, like, well, what are Starvo's like strengths and weaknesses? So his strength obviously is that he has these like Mondo disruptive hands, right? And then also he has like a pretty strong equipment suite, just on the virtue of being an elemental guardian. Uh, but his weakness is that he plays like a lot of cards that block poorly or don't block at all. And also he ha sometimes has turns where he just does like literally nothing. Yeah. Like, his overall damage output is actually not that insane. Yeah. Like, like, like his, like, one of his, some of his best turns are 13 damage turns. Like, when, it, when it's just, like, in terms of just pure damage. Yeah. Now, that's usually, like, an Ogan old used, and with the Yatsia activated, or the triggered ability, so it's uh, nine plus potentially, you know, two extra cards. But when you're just talking about damage, it's not actually, like, nuts. Yeah, his damage output wasn't high, that high numerically, but I think it was the combination of, at the time, Awakening, but then also later on, even when Awakening is banned, having access to three Oak and Olds plus three uh, Crippling Crushes made it so that there was like six turns where you would just go so far above like the normal rate that it'd be difficult for like any decks to come back from, right? In, and so it's like... Uh, Knowing all of this, knowing that Starvo basically has six like Mondo turns, you can kind of begin to construct your game plan around that. So I think uh, to continue the anecdote, uh, we had a really hard time with Viserai into Starvo uh, initially at that tournament. But I was like, I kept on working on the deck and found that basically if you try to like aggro out the Starvo, if you play like an aggro game plan, it's like very difficult to fit in defense reactions because you just like introduce a lot of inconsistencies. But if you're just going like this full like OTK plan where most of the time you're just like, whatever, you just want to play like a re read the runes or two card hands like Mordor Tide plus read the runes, playing like a bunch of defense reactions is actually uh, not too bad. And so it ended up being like, I think for Viserai into 
Starvo, there was maybe like, I think it was like 11 or 13 cards or whatever it was that you would like completely transform your deck from being like an aggro-oriented uh, like mid-range deck into just like a full like blocking like OTK deck. And I think by the end of the format before they banned uh, Bloodsheath Skeletta in CC, I think my win rate against Starva was somewhere between like 65 to like 75%. I mean, this is like, also, we would be remiss to not mention just how powerful Skeleta was in that deck. That was oh, yeah. one of the reasons why you could just sit around dirtling. Like, actually making rune chants in the OTK strategy was massively inefficient. Like, after the first turn of making rune chants, every turn you were making, like, one, two, or three rune Like, it was just so, such a slow process. Yeah, you needed to make like 24 or whatever rune chance. Yeah, yeah. In order to kind of guarantee the kill, like sometimes maybe you're you're forced to go a little earlier, but like that I mean it was just like the Clash of Titans. Like both decks had some very powerful things and that was kind of um taking advantage of Viserai being a flexible hero. So Viserai could be aggressive. In fact, another matchup that Viserai was actually fine into was the Prism matchup where you would not want to be just sitting around making rune chants, you, you know, you'd be a lot more aggressive and pop that Skeleta for just maybe two rune chants of value. Yeah, and so the in this case, like, you have enough sideboard slots in your deck, or sorry, rather, if you devote enough sideboard slots into your deck, your hero's toolkit, like, most notably the Bloodsheath Skeleta, being in your toolkit kind of enables you to overcome... Uh, like the deficiencies in like your primary strategy, right? Um, for a counter example, uh, old him into pr into prism is probably like universally accepted as being just like a terrible matchup. And I've seen lists floating around. Uh, Kale McCreeth actually tweeted at me. It's like, oh, if you just include these like thirteen cards, whatever, then you can make the prism matchup like okay. And I think the general consensus I've seen stuff like you run like lead the charge and like wounding blow. And stuff it's just like things that just like generally do not um do not like really fit with like the normal ultimate game plan uh i think that all of these cards don't really address prism's natural weakness where it where in my opinion prism's weakness is that she has a really hard time once she's on the back foot to be able to string together a pivot turn because she, one she doesn't have armor like like real armor to to block on like the pivot turn uh and then two most of her power cards require like i would say like three cards to play like you need like if you want to play like a yellow aura for example you need like three cards like one like a blue and a tunic counter or something and you need to like be doing something else in addition to playing that aura like you need another blue aura and that aura doesn't block like it doesn't even block two it blocks it just can't block yeah, yeah so in general if we break this down then what is prism's actual weakness in my opinion prism's actual weakness is two decks that can go much higher than 12 damage per like four or five card hand uh decks in the past that she struggled with is like the original version of cheerios briar i think she struggled against chain i think now she struggles against five just like decks that can threaten a lot of damage per turn kind of consistently to just like prevent the pivot turn from ever happening. Yeah, or just punish you for a lot of damage if you're trying to play an aura. 
Yeah, yeah. And so I think that if you look at all the cards that you can play, like most people when they're like approaching like Ultim into Prism, they're just looking at it from the angle of like, oh, I got to deal with these auras. But the issue is that you're not really taking advantage of the weaknesses that that Prism has. And you're just trying to kind of manage her against her strengths. And so like no matter like what you how many like cards you devoted to the sideboard, it's never really going to be a good matchup. And I am pretty sure even if you devote like 13 whatever cards into the prison matchup, it's still going to be difficult to beat like good prison players. I think I've seen floating around on the discussion forums or basically like the whole point is you just like you play all these cards so that you can beat the bad prison players that you play early on in Swiss. And I guess to add to that, um, you, what you're trying to say here, I think, is effectively sometimes having sideboard cards can really make or break certain matchups. Sometimes, though, it might not be worth the effort um, because having these sideboard slots, like having 13 slots dedicated to Prism, it's a real cost. Most deck lists are relatively tight. Um, you have 60 cards that are you know, you have to present at least 60. You have anywhere from five equipment to maybe like six or seven. And so yep. there's only about 13 cards typically. And even 13 is quite generous because some decks or some heroes need more than like seven equipment. Yep. If you dedicate all of them to Prism, you're not dedicating any to any other matchup. And that could be a real detriment. Like you could lose the Prism matchup anyway even with these 13 cards, and also be disadvantaged, we're not favored in the mirror, against some of the aggro decks, maybe against some of the wizards as Ultim. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, really, I think you need to ask yourself um, when you're dedicating like these sideboard spots, there's, uh, I think, in my opinion, there's like two ways that you can gain percentage points in Flesh and Blood. One, you could just have an ultimate. It's just kind of like in other games, like going bigger. Like you could just have, you could add cards to your deck that just cause it to have an end game advantage where if you go through like all of the cards in your deck and you and your opponent are playing optimally, you just like beat them out. And this is kind of, I think, like the kind of advantage that Prism has over Oldham, where if the game kind of like drags on. Like, Oldham just cannot answer effectively all of Prism's threats. Uh, the other kind of advantage that you can generate is you can put cards into your deck that will shorten the game and, in, and induce variance. So maybe there, uh, an example of this is, in my opinion, like when <clears throat> Briar is playing against Oldham, right? Uh... I think nowadays, Briar, I think after they printed cards like Ravel and Runeblood uh, and Swarming Gloomvale, Briar might have like a little bit more even time going into Oldham. But definitely during, I think, Tales of Aria meta, the, like, the way that the Briar deck was just like configured, I think was not that strong ultimately endgame against Oldham because... Uh, it was like super linear, but you had the option to kind of induce variance by playing uh, cards like Channel Mount Heroic, where it's not like a, not like a very consistent strategy. But if you set it up and you draw like a good hand, you can just like high roll like your opponent like crazy. Or similarly, I think Briar into Starvo is kind of the same way, right? And I think uh, 
in flesh and blood in general, most of the time to induce variance means to just like have some kind of like crazy, super high damage cap play. Uh, Fi, uh, Fi can do it with cards like Toma Firebrand. I think is a card that uh, increases your damage cap significantly. What, what are other good examples? Sonata. Yeah, Sonata Arcanics. Um, in Viserai, you pay one, you draw two cards. That's like a huge bump in damage. Uh, for Art of War. To like, yeah, as opposed to the current rate. Yeah, Art of War. Just like these kind, these kinds of cards that are a little bit higher variance, but can lead to these extremely high damage uh turn scenarios i think will always give your deck like a chance even if you're losing in the end game scenario yeah I, I think it's kind of funny um so when we say flesh and blood is a matchup roulette game like it's not like other pcgs aren't matchup roulette but like if you are in a bad matchup it's it's like you can't win because your opponent got mana screwed or like flooded like there's a like we say less variance because the, the way the decks and the way the hands work because i don't know i just think of uh like I, I was playing mono red burn and my i was against a blue white control and that's typically one of the worst matchups this is like thero standard in magic the gathering my opponent couldn't draw a fourth land and i just won <laughs> yeah. i think this is like most prominent in flesh and blood when you get into like 50 50s sure. or, or or matchups that are close to 50 50 I think those are the ones that most closely resemble the scenario that you're describing. So, like, the reason why... Uh, it's kind of interesting. Like, Flesh and Blood is kind of like... Um, I want to say it's like chess. It's not exactly like chess, but uh, if you go through, like, your whole deck and you're, like, pitch stacking, whatever, it's kind of like chess where you're setting up, like, an endgame position and, and you just set up, like, you're going to draw, like, these hands at the end of the game. And so you're going to... You're, you're kind of, like, checkmating your opponent, in a sense. In order to have like a true 50-50 in Flesh and Blood, basically you and your opponent have to be trying to shorten the game so that the only thing that matters is when you draw like half of your deck because you only go through maybe like six turn cycles or, or even less like a lot of the matches in the Stubby Hammers, Fi, whatever, meta, maybe they'll only go like two turn cycles or three turn cycles. So when you're only drawing like 20%, 30%, whatever of your deck, you just introduce a lot more variance into the game. And then so the matchups will feel a lot more coin flippy. And I think that's kind of how you can get your, get an edge. And this also should inform how you are kind of playing or like your strategy for playing in these matchups as well, right? You just like need to take more risks. So like a good example, okay, I'll try to use more modern examples. So like a good example is like if you're Viserai, you're against... Bravo Showstopper, and they have not played a Crippling Crush, and you're on, like, turn 7, and you're, like, you are playing in a way, like, should I push a little bit more damage this turn, or should I not? And they don't block your first attack? There should be alarm bells going on. You're about to get Crippling Crushed. Right. Um, and alternatively, on the flip side of that, if you're Bravo playing to Viserai, um, you should know that if you can't shorten this game, every time they do like a Mordred Revel, like those are kind of like the two, like one play together, like they're just beating, cheating the, the game in terms of like damage. Like every time that happens, you're just, you just take damage. Like you, it's like, it's just going to happen. They have three Mordred Tides, they have three Revels in their deck. Like 
You know, like every time they draw them, you're just going to take damage. And unless you can put them in a situation where they're forced to block with them, you're going to have to take damage. So um, I think just like anything that any type of matchup where both players can kind of or both heroes are able to kind of block, you just have to keep in mind the strengths and weaknesses of your opponent's deck and just accept like like don't feel bad like oh my gosh he's doing it again the mordred and the like that's in they're in his deck he's gonna draw him if you if you keep letting the game go on like well don't be surprised if it happens right like like if you if that is like a play that you do not want to have happen maybe you should just like be trading life instead of instead of like letting that uh because it's gonna like that play is gonna happen eventually i think that kind of touches on what we said last week in terms of who's a beatdown but really what i'm trying to say is there's less variance in the sense that if you're able to block you will decrease the variance and that could be favorable or not favorable for you so and i think what also is cool about that is it touches upon why i think we see i think that we will probably this is kind of like projection mode but i don't think we'll see as much fi going into singapore and utrecht sorry uh lil uh because fi does not have that type of flexibility like he cannot prolong the game if he so chooses to, it's just very hard. It's almost impossible. Yeah, it's kind of one-dimensional. If I honestly reminds me a lot of kind of Cheerios Briar in that the deck just like wants to play like a certain way. It doesn't actually. So I knew you would probably bring that up. Cheerios Briar was busted on another dimension. That's like you could play Cheerios Briar in a way that you would get like three or four embodiments. Oh yeah, sure. And then you would just block with one non-attack for like five or six. And it was just, <laughs> like you could block a command and conquer with one card. Yeah, Chir- I mean, yeah, Chiris Briar numerically was probably stronger than Phi. But I just mean in terms of uh, being able to, like, alter your game plan. Like, you can't, like, I don't think Chiris Briar can really, like, prolong the game. Sure, sure. Actually, like, it to me, uh, Phi is just like the other Ninja Katsu. We very briefly flirted with testing Aggro Katsu, like, a long time ago. Uh-huh. Even then, we were playing Belittle. Um and Art of War, and it was just, we tested into Chain, that was just not a good time. So, like, I, I do think that, like, matchup roulette is a thing. Fi has good matchups, um, but the matchups where you might want to block a little bit more, it's just very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, one thing, one last, uh, I guess, topic that I wanted to go over, before, and we might dedicate, like, a, a larger episode to this, uh, probably either at the Pro Tour or maybe after the Pro Tour, is kind of when you're preparing for these, like, larger tournaments, knowing that uh, this kind of matchup roulette exists uh, and that there's only, like, so many things that you can do to mitigate the matchups. How should you approach, like, selecting a deck then for for these larger tournaments? Uh, like, you made a prediction where you thought that since Fi cannot, like, really... I guess, like, toe the line. Uh, if somebody finds, for example, like, a way to exploit Fi, it's, like, very difficult to for Fi to, like, beat them, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think that you you have to... This is kind of, like, where, uh, I guess, like, preparation and also just kind of, like, being active within the community, trying to get, like, a, a pulse... Uh, getting the pulse on, like, what everybody is doing is going to be, like, most beneficial to you. Uh, I think I've seen somebody talk about this on a on another uh, YouTube video. I don't exactly remember, but you kind of have to like make yourself like a table of like all the decks that you think are going to be at, at the tournament, and then you have to make a judgment call as to like how many um, how many of them there are going to be. Right? I can say from my experience that day one and day two percentages are usually fairly different. Like day two decks are 
day two decks are usually going to be like the ones that are actually good. And day one, the like no matter like how powerful you think like a deck is, it's very difficult for that deck to occupy more than like 25% of the meta for the initial tournament. Um, and so you just have to like kind of make like your your best guess of like what you think everybody's going to play, what you think like the, the best performing decks are. And just like make yourself like a weighted average. Like, is it worth it for me to put these cards into my deck to improve this matchup by like this percentage? If I'm gonna expect to see it like this percentage of the time, like how much is it gonna affect my overall like total win rate, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of the reason what inspired us to talk about Fab as a matchup roulette is that currently in the constructed meta and to an extent uprising draft, people are saying that the band is relatively healthy. And I think a lot of that is because there is no one single like overarching deck that just like beats everybody. Yeah, every deck has key weaknesses to decks that are realistically playable. Yep. And they're not all the same. Do you think that there are like takeaways? So like if you're listening to this podcast and now that you, let's say you accept that there is a matchup roulette, do you think there's something that the listeners can do in order to like better prepare themselves? I think dimensionally, something we didn't talk about is also Blitz, but I think dimensionally it's the best way to apply this to your future tournaments besides, without really knowing what people are going to play is to actually play a couple of these matchups and get a feel for how weighted towards one hero or the other it is. Don't just take someone else's word for it. Like, someone can tell you that this hero is either good or bad into Icelander. Try to, like, play a couple of games and, like, know why. Like, it definitely will help you. And you might find that there are some cards that you can sideboard and and, and make or break, or that that's just another matchup that you're, you know, you're going to sign the slip and go get KFC with this guy. So, like, I think that's something that I would highly recommend. Just And you don't have to play that many games. Like, two or three games is, in my opinion, all it takes if you can kind of just, like, as you're playing, get a feel for what's going on. And, you know, neither player kind of just threw, like, an actual useless hand that's, like, a low chance of happening. I think that's actually one of the nice things about Flesh and Blood. Like, you don't actually have to play the matchup that many times yeah. to really understand yeah. who's winning or losing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the other thing is you should... Um, know your deck pretty well that you end up choosing because we talk about fab as a match roulette to make it seem like you want to pick like the right deck but if you don't know how to play ultim very well and you have not even devoted the two or three games to kind of like most of these matchups you might lose to like like we i think viserai is considered kind of ultim like ultim kind of beats viserai um and in theory it makes sense right because crown of seeds uh ultim can either use rampart or Slagmite, but whatever, the, the way Vizrai's damage is kind of split, Ultim usually gets an advantage in the sense that he can block it very efficiently. Also, Ultim's Ice React is very good against Vizrai, who often, like, the max damage hands are the four or five card hands. Um, but if you have never played that matchup, you might just lose. Like, you might not be playing it correctly. Um, I think most of the time, you can just blindly block, 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 and, like, always, like, like you know, decide between Hammer versus, like, Ice React versus, like, blocking three. Like, you might... I think maybe if you're always just blocking, you can win. But like, you know, those are like some things you got to figure out for yourself. You know? Yeah, it's like the sometimes the the edges that you have can be kind of thin. Like that doesn't mean that you won't win a large percentage of the time. You can win 
uh, put it this way like you can win like 90 percent of your matches or your edge is just that you just get ahead by like one or two cards right yeah but if you don't know how to play your deck optimally and you give away like one or two cards worth of value you just gave away your edge and if you, if you give away more than one or two cards of value then that's really how you lose the game what are some ways you can give up i know we're going a little bit longer but oh yeah i mean so like in your example like um ultim versus like viz right let's say like uh if you don't know that you're supposed to ice react in order to deny arsenal then you can give the Viserai access to like a four or five card hand uh, when they should not have. Uh, and them being able to like set up an arsenal and like start like a cycle of having an arsenal every turn for multiple turns basically unlocks maybe an extra like three or four damage for them every hand. As opposed to if they had like an off, like an off-ish turn and you could like block them all out, that was like your chance to kind of get ahead. Yeah, yeah. And I guess to just literally talk about that example a little bit more, that's an understanding of Viserai's weaknesses. And Viserai's weaknesses, and it's a very Runeblade weakness, is he needs like a non-attack and an attack. And ideally that non-attack is a Mavrin Skies or like an extender we like to call, like a go-again giver, um, to really have like a like a semblance of a good hand. Like there are creative ways to formulate other hands, like with the Rattlebones and a Gloom Veil, or you have a bunch of Rune Chants and you have a Rune Flat. Like there are other ways to do it, but as a whole, like... He do he does need to draw like like a good split of cards. And by having an arsenal where you arsenal one or the other, it increases the chances of him having just like a relevant hand by like so much. It's an extra card. <laughs> yeah, it's most specifically it's also like a card that you're carrying over knowing that let's say you drew like you drew a hand that's like non attack biased. So you arsenal a non attack, you're probably gonna draw like a hand that's like more attack biased in the future. It just like smooths out your draws by denying that to your opponent you're actually doing a lot more than just um just like taking the card away you're just increasing the chances that they might not be able to have as much of a relevant hand and that's just something that like you play a few games and you you get a feel another way of kind of preparing for, for these tournaments is honestly seeking out the people that you think are a little bit better at those heroes and just having them beat you with those heroes um i think i learn 90 percent I think 90% of what makes me a better Flesh and Blood player is when I lose games and I kind of figure out how I lost or what my opponent's plan was while they were playing. Like, if they stumble into a victory, like, I, I got unlucky, they got lucky. Like, that's a, that's a different, like, that's just a feels bad, whatever. But I really actually appreciate when I'm, like, you know, pounded to pieces and just completely destroyed. Like, the harder you beat me, the more I'm like, dang, okay either my deck construction, like I've learned something here, right? Hopefully you guys found this conversation to be helpful. Again, remember to rate, uh, to give our podcast reviews on the various platforms. I think probably the, you're going to have to like download some app, like podcasting apps on your mobile phone if you haven't already. I don't know. It, it, it helps us a lot and we will read out the most interesting or maybe the only reviews that we get. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to do any of that leaving a comment on youtube is helpful as well i have been reading some of the comments um i particularly know that there's some interest in, in just more examples uh especially maybe more examples that pertain to the current uh format and so i've kept that in mind um you are not unheard yeah we're also trying something new to improve the audio quality so we definitely listen to any and all feedback all right. Well, I guess 
that's this week. Um, we'll see you next week, and thanks so much for listening. See you on the next one.